Let me say a few words about the second half of Jean-Paul Sartre's anti-Semite and Jew. I think it's a really interesting shift around the one-third to one-half point in the book where Sartre moves from a long meditation on what I think we could call two forms of anti-Semitism, um, one called the anti-Semite and the other called the Democrat, both of whom, as he says quite clearly and directly, want, in the end, the elimination of the Jew. Now, there's an important terminological distinction that I think we get uh, clarity on in the second half of the book, and that's the difference between the Jew and a Jewish person or Jewish people. The Jew throughout the book signifies not the lives of Jewish people in the world, as much as, much as it uh, describes very directly the image or concept or frame or interpretive apparatus through which Jewish people are seen by anti-Semites, right, and non-Jewish people, including the Democrat. When we think about it that way, we see the importance of the gaze in Sartre's work played out here, not as it is uh, across some of his other earlier works where it's a more generalized uh, notion of how our perceptual apparatus and anticipations and um, prefigurations set objects in the world up with a, a, a cluster of meanings or, or core meaning. When it's put in the context of, of the Jew, right, that the Jew ends up being that interpretive frame, and it functions in the gaze of the non-Jew, right, just to see, uh, especially in the case of the anti-Semite, all of these things considered to be characteristics of the Jew, but which are really, in the end, just forms of projection of the anti-Semites' uh, vision of the world. And that even the Democrat, despite the critique that the Democrat may have of um, notions of the, uh, you know, conceptions of the Jew in um, resisting anti-Semitism, nevertheless, the Democrat works with the ideas of the anti-Semite, right? in order to eliminate this category of, of the Jew and therefore eliminate uh, the presence of the Jew in the world, both as a person and as a concept. I think there's an unresolved tension there, and this is my own reading of the book, around what the Democrat is up to, because on the one hand, Sartre absolutely identifies the anti-Semite and the Democrat as having the same vision uh, at its core, right, its end game is uh, the same. It's identical. It's the elimination of the Jew. It's an eliminationist perspective. What we might call liberal humanism that plays out, say, in the United States in forms of colorblindness, right? Which really means it's a vision that doesn't want people of color, doesn't want, in particular, I think, in the United States, doesn't want black people, right? That's the Democrat, right? That way an eliminationist sensibility uh, works in the backdrop right, or in the background of what initially seems like a liberatory or emancipatory vision. To put that in the same category as the anti-Semite is a provocative claim, I think, and um, Sartre doesn't really deal with it with much nuance, but it is an important insight, uh, however unsettling it is. And I think anyone who wants to make a turn towards what he calls the Democrat, what, what, what we might call liberal humanism in another context, I think in the end, anyone who adopts that perspective has to answer Sartre's objection if one wants to pursue that line of thinking. 
But in thinking about uh, the function of the gaze and the way the anti-Semitic gaze works to form the uh, category, right, or, or organizing principle or concept of the Jew, seeing that as located in the gaze is, I think, a way that Sartre's underscoring, and this plays out really a lot in the second half of the book, is underscoring how racism, or hate as he calls it in the subtitle of the book, the way hate or racism functions at the level of perception. That is, racism is not a, 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 a value system of ranking racial groups, right? And that alone, as if it were just some sort of belief, right, that we do or do not uh, subscribe to. Also, racism for him is uh, not a characteristic of any person. It is rather, uh, whether that's the, the object of racism or the subject who's, who's, who uh, harbors racist beliefs, but rather that racism is working most fundamentally at the level of perception. And so I think there are really important parts in the second half of the book along these lines where he talks about how a Jewish person <clears throat> might want to defy these stereotypes, right, that the anti-Semite has, or might point to him or herself and say, you know, I'm not those things that you say, therefore your conception of the Jew, right, to the anti-Semite, your conception of the Jew is fallacious or groundless or can't actually describe Jewish people. But what I think Sartre points out in, in that second half is that the gaze doesn't function that way. It's not a theory that's tested in the world, right? It doesn't, it doesn't test itself with empirical data. Are people like this or are people not like this? Rather, everything that the Jew, Jewish person does is assessed according to this notion of the Jew. That is, you can be a bad Jew right? That you can be a, a, an exemplary Jew and everything in between. That is to say that this notion of the Jew has no roots in any kind of experience of another person. It is rather a construction that functions in the gaze to organize our perceptual powers such that no matter what a Jewish person does, it will confirm the category of the Jew. The regard in that way has a unique kind of hegemony, right? It has a unique kind of hegemony because it can't be disproven by the empirical. Now, he puts that also alongside um, a sort of rethinking or, or uh, just not necessarily even a rethinking, but a thinking through of notions of freedom and responsibility that in anti-Semite and Jew are put uh, uh, at the heart of what he calls situatedness. And that notion of situatedness is so important because it's Sartre's um, starting point in the book. I mean, it comes later in the book, but it's really the, the, the phenomenological or experiential uh, starting point of the book. To say, you know, we don't live in the world as sort of atomic right, uh, units right, who simply operate from outside the world, right? We are born into a time and place. That time and place has a set of cultural norms and values and political habits into which we, as we become who we are, right, we are enmeshed in those. 
And so initially one might say about situatedness that this compromises or limits any notion of freedom and therefore any notion of responsibility. I really like Sartre's approach to this and, and that he takes it on directly because I think this is such an important part of a sort of racially harmful, you call it racist, but a racially harmful person. And I just say racially harmful in order to encompass the explicit racist, but also what Sartre calls the Democrat or the liberal humanist, that they both <clears throat> do harm, uh, do racial harm in the world, right? And they do racial harm, and you can't say, well, the world is anti-Semitic, right? Because he's writing this from France, from Europe, and in, in the middle 1940s. So of course anti-Semitism is a, a centerpiece of the European world, right? It had been for centuries and it was absolutely during the Second World War in which, you know, millions of Jews died because of it. So it's nothing to say that Europe is an anti-Semitic space, right, for non uh, anti-Semitic space in which non-Jewish Europeans and Jewish Europeans are situated. But what he wants to avoid, and this is why I think this, uh, this argument is really important whether one agrees with it or not as a strategy, but it's really important because when we talk about situatedness, we really cut to the heart of the evasion of responsibility in most cases. That is, if you say, well, the world is anti-Semitic, so I can't be held responsible for anti-Semitism or the anti-Semitism of my very being or of my action or of my relations to the world, right? And if that's the case, right, then there is no freedom and responsibility. There is really the evasion of freedom and responsibility, right? We're, at, we're, we're not responsible and we are bound, we are unfree if we really believe situatedness is, is a, a check on or limit to freedom and responsibility. Rather, what Sartre, of course, argues, and this is around page 89 especially, but also 59 and 60 in the text, so really at that middle point of the book, what he's getting at there is that once we understand our situatedness, we understand our freedom and responsibility in relation to our situatedness. That is, there's a mediating element here. It's not I am free and responsible one-to-one -one with another. Rather, I am free and responsible in relation to my own situatedness. So if one says, well, the world is anti-Semitic, therefore you cannot blame me, right, for, for some anti-Semitic habit, say, that I have. If I say that, then Sartre is in this book, quick to point out and really develop his argument from that moment of awareness. Once you understand your situatedness, you are free to configure your own life and your own sense of action in relation to that situatedness. What do you do with that situation? If the, if the situation is, is anti-Semitic, then the relation to uh, my relation to an anti-Semitic world is my own freedom, and therefore I'm responsible for my relationship to that. As I said in class a number of times, and we went through various kinds of examples, both 
um, Europeans sort of imagining ourselves back to the middle 20th century, but also thinking about our world today in which someone may say, but we live in, in, a, in a world of systematic or institutional racism, which I think is often argued or offered as a way for white people to say, well, then I don't bear a relationship to that. Like, I can't fix institutions. Like, I'm not responsible for those institutions. They preceded me. They are also conditions of my own socialization. And so I think that notion, that element of situatedness often leads to not only a kind of quietism, like there's nothing that I can do, what's the point? But also more deeply, a sense of, well, I was formed by that, but I'm not responsible for it because I didn't make it. Delinking the idea, you made it, therefore you're responsible for it, is really important in anti-Semite and Jew. And it's important for us to think about as, as, as a starting point for any arguments about race, racism, and our responsibility as members of an anti-black or anti-Semitic world. Because if I'm responsible for my sense of situatedness, it asks me, like, what, what does it mean that I live in this kind of world? You know, so it asks me, right, as a white American, how do I live in relation to my situatedness in an anti-black world? Because I'm responsible for how I live in relation to it. I can live indifferent. I can live in a way that amplifies its anti-blackness. And I can live in a relation of dismantling, contesting, and revolting against that anti-blackness and all kinds of spaces in between. But for each of those movements, I'm responsible. So for the anti-Semite and anti-Semite and Jew, there is no evasion of responsibility. There is no bad faith moment, in other words, where one can say, well, it's an anti-Semitic world, so of course I'm anti-Semitic, but it's not my fault. That's a feature of the world. Rather, Sartre is saying, well, your own relationship to your situatedness is what you are responsible for. Because the anti-Semite doesn't have to concede to, doesn't have to reproduce anti-Semitism. The anti-Semite can be a different kind of person through an action and series of actions and series of commitments against the anti-Semitic core or infrastructure of his or her situatedness. I've always found this to be one of the more important and interesting parts of Sartre's philosophy. It's not a philosophy that I've paid particular close attention to in my own writing, for what it's worth. Um, uh, but I think this part of his argument is so important and illuminates so many things about the ongoing struggle not to eliminate racism and hate, but the struggle to just get people who who are not uh, um, objects of that hate, but rather implicated as, as agents of that hate, agents of that racism, right? It gives a way of, of painting all of us into a corner and saying, I'm not saying you're responsible for racism and as an institution. I'm not saying you're responsible for the legacy of slavery because you didn't enslave people. What I'm saying is you are responsible for your situatedness in a world that you were born into, because that's what situatedness means. Now, one thing that came up in class that I thought was really important, and this is part of why we read the first chapter of Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk before, is he also applies this to the Jew. 
right? He says the Jew is also responsible for his relationship to an anti-Semitic world and that sense of situatedness. And of course, I get it, right? There's something kind of revolting about that, kind of repulsive. It's like, how could you say you're responsible for your situatedness when you are held by the gaze of the anti-Semite, right? Held by the gaze of the, of the racist white, if we switch geographies. Well, that's where, you know, in this, you know, this, again, this is why Souls of Black Folk for me is such an important text to start with. Because what Du Bois is saying there, if you remember, is in, and it's just like, I think the second or third paragraph even, third paragraph, I think, when he says like, look, when I, w when I first understood how this white girl hated me because I'm black, wanted to exclude me from the world because I was black, I was faced, this is Du Bois talking, I was faced with the choice of how to respond to this revelation of an anti-black world, of a racist world. And he has his own, right? And he said that part where he says, like, I wanted to beat them in every foot race, in every exam in class, and I wanted to beat their stringy little heads, right? So for him, his own freedom and responsibility to use the Sartrean language 45 years later, right? But to use it backwards, his freedom and responsibility came out in that moment of this is how he made the, the decision and series of commitments, right? His own freedom to set himself in relation to an anti-black world in the way that he did. And he also acknowledges that this is not the choice that others made. For others, it meant um, sycophancy, it meant depression, it meant rage, it meant withdrawal. And he, he sort of outlines very quickly. But for me, that's that important part where it's like, look, you know, living in a, a situation, right, living in relation to an anti-black world for the objects of anti-black racism, right, black people, or an anti-Semitic world for Jewish people has this element of freedom and responsibility. You are responsible for your own relation to it, right? That spurs struggle, that spurs resistance, but can also spur a sense of, of defeat and despair. And, you know, Du Bois is so clear on that. And I think that's really important because uh, it's, you know, and not every story about encountering anti-black racism is a story of heroism. It's also a story of, of giving up and not having the will and the energy to, to fight, to resist. Sartre calls that freedom and responsibility, but I think we need to really de-link that to say, to say this phrase again. Right? There's a lot of de-linking going on uh, across this uh, course. We have to de-link the sort of moralism and judginess that freedom and responsibility often imply. Because when he says, you know, you're responsible for your relation, how you um, are in your situation, we can think then that when Du Bois outlines those other responses that aren't his, that a Sartrean reading of that would be to shame and critique the uh, people whose relationship to it becomes like sycophancy, right? Or depression or defeat or rage. But I don't think that Sartre means that at, at all in that judgy sense. In fact, I know he doesn't mean it. What he means instead is that there is always the capacity to make a world in that sense of situatedness, uh, make worlds, I should say plural, make worlds that 
perform all kinds of meaning-making functions. So we talked in class about the generation of, of African-American culture, which has so many deep roots, not all, but so many deep roots in the plantation and in slavery. And if we think about slavery in the plantation, we're talking about immense suffering, right? A sense of anti-blackness that it feels absurd to even say the phrase anti-black, right? These were just machines of, of destruction and despair and suffering and death. Nevertheless, people for generations and generations, right, for centuries, uh, made everything that we, so many things, not everything, so many things that we think of when we think of American culture and certainly black American culture around music, around cuisine, around dance, around speech, around and through speech, around oral traditions that become religious uh, institutional features, um, unique theologies, literary voice, and so on. That's a moment of expression of freedom and responsibility, that people make their relationship to their situation, even when that situation seems bleak and nihilistic, hopeless, mean, you know, devoid of meaning, full of despair and melancholy. People still make a relationship to that. In figuring out how that works, right, is figuring out the function of freedom in those kinds of moments and how the freedom in those kinds of moments is a way of taking responsibility not for the world, right, because again, it's not a moralistic blame. It is rather uh, taking responsibility for the world in that one makes something. Right, if you want to call it meaning, if you want to call it world, if you want to call it a counter to the world, any of these sort of any of this sort of range, massive range of responses. That to me is really where um, Sartre's Sartre's uh, dilemma is resolved in the second half of the book because one of his dilemmas in the second half is that shift from a sole focus on the anti-Semite and the Democrat as a sort of variant of the anti-Semite, taking his uh, uh, taking a shift in perspective to think about what about this from the perspective of the Jew? Well, from the perspective of the Jew, we're in a very different situation, right? We're in this question of like, how does the Jew, how, how can, sorry, not the Jew, how can a Jewish person be authentic, right? Have a sense of authenticity in an anti-Semitic world. Well, that's part of the craft of freedom and responsibility. And that freedom and responsibility in relation to the situation or situatedness is exactly where one negotiates that question of authenticity. It's not easy to talk about authenticity in these moments because the anti-Semitic or the, the, the anti-black gaze is sort of lurking at every turn, right? As part of what Du Bois calls double consciousness as both inside and outside a person. Right? However much resistance it might have from the inside of the person, it's nevertheless also in there. So the question of authenticity about how one lives as a Jewish person in relationship to the category Jew as generated by the anti-Semite, how one lives authentically as a Jewish person in an anti-Semitic world, again, it's a question of freedom and responsibility, of good faith not evading the fact that one is not there to mimic racist categories, but instead to configure one's own life in relationship to an anti-Semitic or anti-black world, right? To a hate-filled world and live authentically as an object of hate, 
right? And therefore limit the scope and power of the racist gaze. The racist gaze imagines it has total power. In some ways, because it's embedded in the institutions that govern our world, it does have, you know, enormous power, but not absolute power. And this is where Sartre's thinking for me is so interesting and important. And it is also where I think Franz Fanon and Black Skin, White Masks really uh, uh, draws a lot of his strength as a theorist. That is, we always have that sense of freedom to figure and configure and reconfigure and refigure our lives in relationship to those categories. And in resisting this is really important uh, in resisting an anti-Semitic or anti-Black or just a racist world, in resisting it and trying to revolutionize in relation to it, right, to, to uproot and change the world as something fundamentally different, it is important to understand, and this is my last bit of comment, it is important for us to understand that the, the category, the Jew, right? It's not the same as Jewish person. And therefore, Jewish people are not responsible for the category of the Jew that anti-Semites use to create an anti-Semitic world. This is important to understand because it also means that, uh, it doesn't mean it, it, what it tells us is that we have to start an analysis of resistance to and transformation of an anti-Semitic or, or racist world we have to start our resistance to it and our strategies with the understanding that that category, right, of the black or the Jew, right, the black is going to be the, the version in Fanon than what we'll sort of deal with in a number of thinkers as well, that that's a projection of the anti-Semite. That's a projection of the white racist. And therefore, the problem is not that Jewish people act a certain way or in Fanon that black people act in a certain way. It's that it doesn't matter how Jewish people and black people act. The anti-Semite and the white racist will always see those people as some variation on the very category or idea or image that they themselves have both created and projected through the racist gaze onto the people that live in the world, right? Jewish people, black people. And in this way, I think it's really interesting on 152, it's right at the very end of the book, I think it's the penultimate paragraph, where uh, Sartre actually quotes uh, Richard Wright. And it's very top of 152, uh, this is quoting from Sartre, quoting Richard Wright. He says, Richard Wright, the Negro writer said recently, quote, there is no Negro problem in the United States, there is only a white problem, end of quote. In the same way, this is Sartre, we must say that anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem, it is our problem. There he's speaking as a non-Jewish European. Since we are not guilty and yet run the risk being its victims and so on and so forth. But that idea then that this, this existential account of how the Jew, right, the category that does racist harm in the world is a projection of the anti-Semite and not a characteristic of Jewish people and therefore Jewish people aren't responsible for it only the anti-Semite is responsible for it, we can begin to locate the proper field of political resistance. The proper field of political resistance is not the Jew. It's not the, or sorry, it's not Jewish people. It's not black people. 
It's who created this category, the Jew or the black. As Richard Wright said, there is no Negro problem in the United States. There is only a white problem. Or Sartre says, there is no uh, anti-Semitism. It's not a Jewish problem. It is our non-Jews problem. That seats existentially the stakes of resistance, right? Who we are resisting and who ultimately needs to be targeted for social and political transformation sets it out in the dynamics of not institutions or habits or personal beliefs, but in how at the very how at the very level of the senses that the racist is able to control the world and its expressiveness through the gaze, through this category. And therefore, when we want to eliminate that, the problem lies again, not with the object of hate, but with the one who creates the conditions under which the object of hate cannot resist, cannot be different, and cannot dismantle that category. And that is a shift of deep political responsibility away from a collective or away from the victims and toward the perpetrators, the anti-Semite and the white.